are tuning in to the Love Breezy Bree Yoga podcast. My name is Bree, and you can find me at lovebreezybreeyoga.com. Check out the show notes for more information, including a link to my website. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste. Hello, Yoga Podcast listeners. You are invited to listen in on an ongoing conversation discussing trauma-informed practices. Today, we are talking about communication. Welcome. Let's go. Exactly. That is exactly what I wanted us to gather from that information. So now we're entering into the part of the conversation that I think is so paramount, which is communication. Now, nonverbal communication, body language, our facial expressions, our tone of voice, what we are doing with our stance, our hands, our shoulders, just all of it, the posture, the impressions that we're giving through this type of language cannot be forgotten. So when we're teaching trauma-informed practices, it is important that we're tuned into everything that we're doing and saying. And the best way to do that is to believe what you are doing and you are saying. So for instance, if you are talking about a particular trigger or a situation that maybe even triggers you or you're not healed from or just you're not quite confident about or you don't know exactly what it is you're trying to say, that's going to come across in some other nonverbal cue. And so the best thing to do is to just stick to what you know Stick to what you're comfortable with, and that confidence in your expertise will follow. Now, communication and how we actually create dialogue, what we say, is equally important when we're talking about those who have suffered from trauma. And we're working in situations where, and and this is what's tricky, but I'm going to continue my sentence, but when we're working in situations where we know We're working with those who have suffered from trauma. But the tricky part is most, if not all, of humankind has had some level of trauma in their life. But of course, as we've discussed previously, there are different levels and and we're not going to get too far into diagnoses and this and that because truth be told, when you're in the public population, whether you're teaching dance or gymnastics or yoga or music or, you know, a classroom of pupils, whatever it is, you may not quite know and they may not even know what they're going to be feeling, what they're going to be triggered by. Sometimes when we're working with those in, you know, a trauma setting, you know, whether it's working one-on-one as a social worker or a psychologist or the like, mental health, you know, worker, caregiver, that sort of thing, or in a situation like what we're all doing, um, then we have some idea, you know, as a person who's been working with the Rape Crisis Center and having the privilege to be able to get training and work with people who have a specific trauma that we're focused on, 
it makes it a bit easier for me to choose my words, choose my display of affection or lack thereof and communication and all the different ways that we're talking about and going to talk about. But again, it's though those mixed populations, those public populations of we just don't know. So it's always proper, in my opinion, to err on the side of being mindful, right? To be um, curious about what different types of communications you can choose to use and to be confident to learn and practice those communications. One of the things that I even notice with myself and those who I work with is that when we get really comfortable, you know, where we can call people more friends than not, we tend to let our guards down. And if you're in a facilitator role or leadership role of any kind, it's really important to be mindful in this area as well. It's sort of the thought process of good parenting, right? A parent is a parent. A parent can have friendly moments with their child, but there is a boundary, right? There is an invisible boundary that parenting and leadership should protect the child from some adult-like behavior decisions that they shouldn't be privy to, um, at least not all at once, but in learning dosages. And when we are comfortable, especially in adult-on-adult situations, so you're teaching adults, not necessarily teaching children, or you're um, working with an adult, some of those boundaries can be accidentally crossed. And a good rule of thumb, well, before I talk about a rule of thumb, a good thing to remember is when you're laughing and playing and joking because that is where things could sort of cross boundary lines. So a good good rule of thumb as a leader is just to listen. Do more listening and actively responding. Now, what is actively responding? It goes back to that mindful you know, concept, instead of just being in flow, right? Like in a completely, um, you know, comfortable conversation like you would be with a loved one or an intimate partner, you are actively responding. So someone is being really open with their conversation on their side and you're just actively deciding how you wish to approach that with all of your communication cues, from body language to the words that come out of your mouth. And the reason why is because before you even realize it, and like I said, I've definitely been guilty of this, you may interject your own personal opinions in a place that just they're not needed, right? If you're facilitating any type of expertise in any type of field, and working one-on-one or in a group setting with these other humans, it's important that your personal opinion isn't derived too far from your expert opinion. So an expert opinion is knowing the scientific result of something. Your personal opinion is taking that scientific result, 
applying it to a situation you've lived through or you have witnessed and giving an opinion on maybe a different result or similar result. So, you know, maybe you're telling the other person something about, you know, how to move their body in a certain way that has been proven to be true for all people, right? (laughs) Well, that's a strong, that's strong language I just used for most people, majority. (laughs) See, that's something we're going to talk about. Saying something like all is really important when you're working with others. Um, and then saying, but for my, my situation or a client I've worked with, this has also seemed to be true. So for you, you know, time will tell or whatever the case may be. Now let's talk about language. Cause I just gave a very Freudian slip example by using the word all. Many of us will hear something like that, like what I just said. And easily be able to interject the meaning that you perceive me to have meant. Like, oh, she doesn't mean all, literally. She's just saying majority. But when you have suffered from trauma, depending on the conversation and what it is that your fears are and your your personal triggers, which you may or may not be even aware of, but especially when we're talking about things like body image, intellect, mental health. These are triggers for most people, (laughs) for many, many people. So it doesn't matter, you know, necessarily what your background is or what traumas you've gone through. Even if someone was, you know, making a very personal assessment about your intellect, for instance, for instance, saying you're not smart, that could be very triggering for many of us, right? Even if we've never had any situation that's been particularly directed towards something like that. So I know you guys can see my puppies. They love coming out and being on the screen on Zoom. They just love it. (laughs) So with their squeaky toys, if you can't hear it. Yeah, see, (laughs) we have some thumbs up. All right. So when we think about saying words like all, then we have to also realize that there are people who are going to go somewhere in their mind, maybe consciously, but the fear is also subconsciously or unconsciously, they're going to get the message that they're different, but not in a good way, right? So if I say something like, all people um, feel this way, and you're thinking, well, I don't feel this way, so some that thing that happened to me when I was a child or five years ago or whatever the case may be has changed me. You know, I'm no longer normal. And so our language, especially when we're in any type of leadership role, even if that leadership role is a fleeting role, meaning it's one hour a week, you know, you're someone's dance instructor, yoga teacher, um, you know, all the way up to degreed positions like mental health worker and and counselor. You may have such an impact on their perception of self, even if you're not someone that they interact with on a regular basis, right? Because you're not viewed as a peer 
in those moments, you're the expert of whatever it is that they are a part of. And many of you are an instructor or a teacher or a mental health um, you know, caregiver or counselor, provider. You know, you all are in some sort of facilitation role. And when we're put into that position, we take an automatic leadership role, whether we realize it or not. You know, um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more too, whether it's in today's conversation or a follow-up conversation, as we are going to really be discussing this type of concept um, multiple times because it's really important to not have a a one-time only discussion about it because communication is everything. It is everything in intimate relationships. It's everything with friends, with colleagues, teammates, bosses, um, and with your clients, right? So one of the things that I learned when I was getting my training as a rape crisis counselor was no matter what the person in need is discussing with you, believe them, right? You at no time at all should be considering if their story is true or false. It's an automatic guarantee. It's an automatic benefit of the doubt. It's an automatic you are feeling exactly what you're feeling and it is true. It is your truth. It might be the truth, but it is your truth, regardless of what the truth is. And when I say the truth, you know, if we're thinking about legally. So I want you to think about that with anybody you're working with. Whatever they're telling you is happening with them, what they're feeling, what they're thinking, you know, their shoulder hurts, they have a pain in their lower back, their head hurts, they felt sad, they felt disrespected, they felt misunderstood, they feel happy, they feel at peace. All of it's true. Now, as I named off many of those feelings and thoughts, the ones that you were probably most comfortable with believing were the ones that felt good. You know, someone telling you that they're happy and that they feel peaceful. You're willing to take on that, right? You're thinking, that's amazing. That's exactly what my goal was. But if someone feels misunderstood or disrespected, that might actually stir up a different trigger in you, which could be defensiveness. So the number one goal is they're right. This isn't the customer's always right, like sales technique. This is... You're right because regardless of what I think happened or what I feel happened, and this of course isn't about legalities, this is just straight human interaction, I am choosing to believe you. Your trauma is real. Now, our goal is to try to mitigate some of those negative responses. You know, someone feeling misunderstood or disrespected, although it's very hard to completely control that, right? Many of you who work in healthcare, mental health type positions understand that there are just times where no matter what you thought you said or how you thought you responded, 
the outcome was the opposite of what your intentions may have been. So when we're dealing with those who have been traumatized and the ones that we know about their trauma, rather it's through a rape crisis center type of situation, right? Someone's calling in and or meeting and discussing a very particular event or series of events that are very particular. And there's responses in place about that. Or if you're just working with the public in a group class situation, you know, and not realizing that a good percentage or a percentage at all or somebody even one person may have a trauma trigger, okay? Not all of us can, <laughs> like that word all, many of us, a lot of us, some of us, most of us, might not even know what triggers us. How nice is it if you can sit down with your partner, you know, your spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, intimate other. And each of you can just jot down a list of what triggers you. You know, it triggers me when you try to tell me how to cook like your mother. <laughs> it triggers me when you berate me in front of family members or friends. It triggers me when you're late, when we already had the date and the time planned. It triggers me when you let the alarm go off over and over again and you just keep pressing snooze. Now, some of those triggers might just be things that get on your nerves and some of those triggers might actually be linked to other events, right? You're telling me to cook like your mother. I don't feel good enough. You are always late when we have something planned. This makes me feel like I did when I was younger and my parents neglected me. So it, it kind of feels like you're dishonoring me or disrespecting or even neglecting my feelings. You don't think I'm important enough, right? You're starting to see where I'm going with that. So we can choose to make a debate out of something and not believe that this could be a trigger for someone or we can choose to believe. Now, if we can choose to believe, I think that we will have a better opportunity to have compassion and to utilize our listening and understanding skills, which is why we are all here to do better at that. Now, we too are human. So we too will have the opportunity to be on the other side. And I want you to look for those opportunities, those opportunities where you feel insecure, unsafe, triggered. When do you feel a little uneasy and why? I know for me, when it's dark outside, I just automatically feel a bit insecure about my safety. You know, even if I'm inside my home, I just feel like it's dark outside. <laughs> it's like more can happen because of it. More, more negative things, right? Now, truth is that negative things can happen during the day. But I just feel safer when it's sunny out, when it's light out. So for me, 
recognizing that and deciding how I want to proceed in my life with that information is really important to my peace of mind, my mental health, and my emotional stability. So if I really feel that strongly about my safety after dark, then I will do things to mitigate being out after dark, right? So, you know, not needing gas at night or ATM things. Those are all safety awareness type things to know. But it could even be making sure I'm home and all the doors are locked and the windows are locked and maybe the alarm is set when the sun sets that I don't put myself in too many scenarios or situations where I'm out after dark and I have to actually be worried. And then secondly, not taking for granted that some of the things I'm worried about and whatever reasons I am, my own past traumas or traumas by proxy of others, which we've talked about. You know, if someone you love has gone through something, you could too feel that trauma. So, you know, if you witness something or someone you care about, like a parent or your child, your loved one, whomever, even working in scenarios where you're hearing a lot of traumatic experiences, such as working with the rape crisis hotline, right? Or center. Hearing what people's experiences are will make you want to be safer, right? So not taking for granted that this is your reality, but figuring out how to support that reality and also to be proactive. Well, we need to do that for our clients, for other people in our lives. We need to do that for ourselves. So when we are facilitating communication, it's important to understand the words that we are using, such as all or, you know, one time I was talking to a, a teenager and, you know, in teen world, things like cool and nerd and bully and geek and, you know, these are like very triggering words in those worlds, right? Maybe not so much as an adult, you know, maybe adult trigger words are a little bit different, but culturally or, you know, these little organisms that develop and microorganisms of those organisms develop, it's important for us to understand what that world looks like. So I'm going to discuss yoga. In yoga, we have this 5,000-year-old complete system of philosophy, right? But in the West and how yoga came to the West was a very aesthetic fitness foundation. Even though there was much spirituality that was introduced in that, so was there a lot of the aesthetics that we see today and what we call a studio practice where people are shaping their bodies into complicated shapes, right? Very flexible shapes. And so in that culture, I'm not saying that this is true of yoga as a philosophy, but in the the culture of, or the, it's like a microorganism of the full culture of yoga, there could be an underlining idea or reputation that it's only for women or it's only for skinny women or it's only for skinny women who are Caucasian or it's only for skinny women who are Caucasian who are wealthy, 
or above middle class or upper middle class. And then that narrative can continue to grow. Or the opposite, it's not for larger bodies or it's not for those who don't look good in yoga pants or men or older people, whatever that means, right? Now, none of that is true, but that doesn't mean that that isn't a narrative, a reputation, a culture, a subculture, a microorganism of those cultures and subcultures. So there could already be trauma in the mind, disturbance of the mind is what I like to think of it as. If you're a student who is unfamiliar with your place in that culture and you have a narrative in your mind. So it's going to be easy to be triggered by the yoga teacher who walks in with six pack abs, who is young and has a certain aesthetic and flexibility. That could be triggering, right? Now, maybe not for many people or all people, but maybe for somebody. And I like to use that as an example because many of us can think about that and go, oh, that makes sense. Another culture that could be considered to be a toxic reputation of the culture is ballet. Same sort of idea, right? So when you think about whatever world you're in and whatever world that your client or you are participating in and how that makes you feel or them feel, then that'll give you some context on how to proceed with communication, right? So if I'm teaching a yoga class and that particular day, the people in my class tend to fit some of those those concepts that aren't true but are popular narratives. And I might notice someone in my class, rather they're being triggered or not, but that may feel a little different, let's just say, if and especially if I point out any of those cultural, um, you know, microorganisms of that type of mindset. So if during class I am talking a lot about how amazing it is that you touch your toes. Oh, look at you all. You just look so wonderful touching your toes. That would not lend itself to an all-inclusive environment, right? So being mindful, again, actively paying attention, actively listening, actively being intentional is important. Now, something that might be coming to your mind is, doesn't this require judgment? Don't don't I, in order to make the assessment I just brought up, have to judge that one person who's in my class that isn't fitting that aesthetic or that culture, that subculture, that organism (laughs) of narrative that may or may not even be in their mind and the hard answer is possibly but the easier response is once you are able to train yourself as a professional 
of trauma-informed practices, pretty much everything you do and everyone you encounter, including your own children or your spouse or loved ones, friends, you will be mindful of what you're saying by actively listening and actively responding. It doesn't mean that you're thinking, I'm in the presence of someone who looks a certain way or acts a certain way. And so I've got, I have to be really inclusive in my language or I have to really avoid some things I would normally say. Doesn't mean that. It means I want to recognize if I'm creating a safe and secure environment for everybody, right? That in order to include this one person, I'm not also excluding anyone else. That's important as well. But when it comes to safety and security, it's always better to err on the side of creating the most safe and secure environment than not. So another example is any hands-on type of behavior, even down to a hug, right? It is always better to ask permission than to take that chance and not ask for permission. I'm even a believer that if you have children or, you know, other than a, tr- a super intimate relationship with like a mate, I think it's always fair game to say, is it okay for me to give you a quick hug? You know, instead of just making an assumption that this other person is an extension of you, even if it's your child, give them the opportunity to say, of course, or not right now, or no, mom, I, I feel stinky, I feel sweaty, I feel gross. Whatever the reason is, not only is that a beautiful way to encourage boundaries, which, believe it or not, have nothing to do with the closeness of your relationship with that other person, but rather if you're that close to them and you ask for permission, well, then the person who I barely know or kind of know, or at least isn't my mom or dad or, you know, they really should be asking for permission, right? Because this person who technically shouldn't have to or doesn't have to or maybe doesn't have to honor my personal space is honoring my personal space. A quick little story. When I was younger, I and I always have, as you know, I talk about journaling all the time. I've always journaled, always, always, since I can remember. And I had such um, private space and boundaries that my mother offered me as far as when it came to my room, my personal space. She was really um, great in that way, you know, honoring my ideas, honoring my boundaries, my space, that sort of thing. I felt so comfortable with writing in my journal and just leaving it atop of my bed wide open like a book I was reading, you know, never, ever, ever did it occur to me that somebody else would ever read it. And it's not that there was anything to hide, but more of just my personal thoughts, right? My mother would close my journal and put it away for me. If I left it out and about or around the house, she would always make sure it found its place home. So naturally, when I was an adult off to college kind of thing, young adult, I was still journaling. And at this point in my life, I had a boyfriend. And again, 
had no qualms about leaving my journal around because no one had ever violated my personal space in that way until him. (laughs) And I learned a very, very good lesson because not only did he violate my personal space and read my journal, but he held information and used it against me when the time served him. So there was multiple traumas and manipulations and things that took place from that moment. And I say all of that because ultimately, at the end of the day, we want the people who are in our presence to feel really, really safe, right? We want to feel really, really safe. And we want them to understand that there is that type of affection and connection and boundaries out there. We also want to be mindful to help guide whoever we're working with to create more boundaries for themselves, even if the ones that, even if their trust levels are really high, so to speak, kind of like my journal story, it's still our place, I believe, to create not only a safe space that's secure, but a way to honor and encourage boundaries. So a lot of that comes with language, you know, depending on the situation you're in. It's, hey, you are writing your personal thoughts in a sacred place. And I know that you don't feel like you have anything to hide or maybe you're just absent minded. But when you leave your journal lying around the house open for anyone to read, at some point, The person may not have negative intentions, but just may be curious enough to read it. Are you comfortable with that? And if you are, then carry on. But if you're not, then let's talk about honoring your space and and your, your private things. And for many people, that might include their mind, their thoughts, their ideas, their decisions. Or, and, or their body, quite literally, or extensions of that personal space, their room, their house, their pets, their car, hopefully just not another human. But on some levels, maybe even that, especially intimate personal partnerships. (coughs) Excuse me. So let's discuss the nonverbal language and communication that we use. When someone is telling us a story and we want to express our engagement, but we do so in a way that could be triggering to them, even if that wasn't your intention. Some examples of this could be really like opening your eyes like, wow, or oh no, or Woo! You know, like this exclamation point, which seems very engaging. But if someone's telling you something and you have this surprise look on your face, this could either be a positive affirmation to what they're discussing with you or make them feel singled out, ostracized or different. So that is why having a nice, calm, peaceful demeanor about yourself 
very open and compassionate and actively listening. You know, nodding the head, yes, typically is safe. Um, You know, smiling when it's appropriate to smile. Those things, just these subtleties, keeping things subtle. It's almost like the idea of listening actively. This is projecting outwardly, externally, physically. This is like a physical expression of actively listening. It's just, it's a calm space, you know, not getting riled up. Um, Same thing with, you know, feeling sad for the other person by putting your hand on your heart and, and sticking out your bottom lip and, you know, making like a sad face and maybe even adding, oh, or, hmm, you know, might not feel that comforting. Again, maybe it does. Maybe there is a positive connotation, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it again feels like, whoa, is that the saddest thing you've ever heard? And most people, (laughs) I got to watch my language, right? You never know if what you are hearing is the softest version of what they have to say. Meaning it could take a really long time, if ever, for somebody to really express an experience or a thought, including your mate, including your child. You may never know the full extent of their experience. And a lot of the time, people tell you a very safe explanation or expression of what they went through or what they're thinking. You know, like dipping your toe in the water. So your, you know, reaction to that can either help facilitate more open conversation if that's where you want that to go, if that's what your boundary is. And we're going to talk about that in a second as well. Um, Because maybe it isn't. Maybe you're not the psychologist in the room, but rather the dance teacher, right? So we'll talk about boundaries for you too because there are times where maybe the conversation doesn't need to continue as well. But if the conversation does need to happen or you are actively listening and open to whatever comes of that conversation, then the idea can be to be a safe place for this person to speak their mind. You don't you don't get any bonus points by having a similar story. You know, um, again, with the rape crisis, you know, center, if someone's telling you about their experience with sexual assault. This is not necessarily your avenue to discuss your sexual assault or one up their experience with something traumatic that someone else has said or, or been through, but rather just to continue actively listening Does that mean that an experience that you wish to share isn't valid? Not necessarily, but it is always better to err on the side of caution, right? Even when we're not talking about something as monumental as a sexual trauma, but even just um, a car accident, um, a physical trauma from said car accident, Right. Someone's telling you about a pain that they have in their clavicle and, you know, you are listening, but not, you know, trying to discuss another person or patient or client that you've worked with with a similar situation. 
unless it can help facilitate some sort of solution for them, right? Again, that expertise with maybe a personal experience or opinion or situation that can help guide the person's current situation. Remember, when people feel the most triggered is typically when they feel misunderstood or disrespected, right? Misunderstood is you are not listening. You didn't understand what I was saying. Or your response doesn't line up with what I feel like I'm trying to express. I feel misunderstood. I do not feel seen. Disrespected might feel like a step further than misunderstood. You know, rather it's I'm expressing how I feel and you are completely going out of your way to make me feel like I am wrong and you are right. In some ways, that can be disrespectful or like a precursor to disrespect. So I don't want to get too much into that today, but I want you to start thinking about that. Misunderstood versus disrespected because typically it's a communication error. Another thing with those nonverbal cues, you know, the eyes, the the hand on the heart, um, also joining in on the fight, you know, sort of that mob mentality of, I can't believe they treated you like that at Target. You know, I'll never shop there again. Again, that's not necessarily going to be the role that you might wish to play in that person's experience. Because actively listening offers so much comfort. Most people, again, I'm using the words most, all, majority, you know, People tend to seek that feeling of connection. And connection is, connection can, can really be expedited if one party, especially the, the party in a more authoritative position, just listens, actively listens. Other examples of nonverbal cues is too much eye contact or maybe no eye contact. Being really mindful of where you're at on that spectrum and maybe even working with people who know you and can give you advisement on how you come off. Too much eye contact can actually feel aggressive can feel domineering. Um, Even when you're intensely listening, it can feel like someone's piercing through your soul. It's always good to, you know, blink, (laughs) but take a moment and sort of, you know, look up to think or look down to, to consider or write if you're taking notes or, you know, kind of, Break purposely break that eye contact if you both are locked in a gaze, right? Um, and again, this just erring on the side of caution because although an intent 
eye gaze connection can be very beautiful, the chances of it being seen as aggressive are probably a little bit more more likely, right? Um, not enough eye contact or none at all can seem like you're disinterested, not paying attention, neglectful, and can also send the effect to the other person that you just do not care. And it's not a really advise, advisable active listening technique. It is always better to be more engaged to actively listen and catch those those small details of the conversation than to be in some way multitasking, even if it's just within your mind. Your hands, what are they doing? You know, are you are you playing with your piece of paper, pen, you know, pulling on something, playing with your hair, um, pointing your finger, using your hands to speak um, a little bit too expressively where it can feel like a lot's going on, can feel really anxiety provoking possibly to another. Um, are you taking up a lot of space, which could accident accidentally put you in their space. You know, I come from a very expressive family where everybody really talks with their hands and they make big motions and take up a lot of space and there's just a lot of sway and pizzazz and, you know, it's really fun. But it also can feel overwhelming, especially if you're talking about something serious or personal or if it just crosses into the other's boundary, or even just slapping someone's leg, you know, haha, that's funny. Or, um, or wow, I'm sorry you feel that way. And then making body contact with them may not be the best decision to make. Again, erring on the side of creating that safe space. So always making sure that you kind of keep your hands to yourself, right? I'm sure everybody has heard an adult tell a child that. <laughs> um. Because you don't know where that hand's going, you know, what's happening with this hand. It's, you know, it's touching my back. It's, it's, you know, giving me a feeling of affirmation, but will this turn into something more? It's, I'm talking, this person's touching me. Now I'm thinking about that and I forgot what I was going to say. Or, you know, we have very interesting areas on the body that have a lot of sensors or a lot of memories, right? Um, lower back, knee, um, of course, belly, private parts, of course. People, some people don't like to be touched on their head, top of their head in particular, hair, um, neck. You know, I have a running joke that with a friend of mine, if you even go up to him and, and touch him on his neck, he just tenses up. It's like for him, it's like fighting words, like someone's gonna grab him by the neck. Um, some of this can come from how someone was punished as a child. You know, if they were pinched in their side or their belly, slapped on their bum, smacked on their face, um, pinched on their neck or in their shoulder, you know, grabbed by their wrist um, to more severe situations, such as sexual assault situations where things can have escalated from just a pat on the knee or a tickle in the waist to something more sinister, right? To people feeling disrespected by being pat on the head. You know, I worked with someone who was four foot 11 and stood six foot too tall in her confidence, and I just adored her. But 
if you even remotely act it like you're going to pat her on her head because she just happened to be so much shorter than most people who she was around. <laughs> I'm catching on to my most and all. Um, and that's another exercise too. I don't want to digress, but really quickly, just writing down those type of words and catching yourself saying certain things. We'll talk about that in a, in a moment. Um, she would be very defensive and triggered by that. And, you know, shorter people who might have that experience or people who look really young, language like kid or, um, you know, just language that doesn't make them feel empowered, you know? So again, just being mindful of that type of scenario that you may be in. Now you might be walking around going, okay, you know, this person is below the average height in my state. And so I'm going to be really mindful of, of what I say. It's, you want to still be very authentic. This is more about a lifestyle approach than it is about a manipulation or a tactic, although you are still learning. So some of this isn't going to come off as very fluid at first. But especially if you're teaching in a multi-group setting for any reason, having that trauma-informed you know, background should be really important. When I work with corporations on topics such as these, the interesting thing is, you know, HR, HR, human resources, but no one's really talking about trauma and how, too, you should work with your coworkers and your boss and your employees, right? But teams get it for the most part nowadays. You know, we're getting a lot more traction with working with teams and cheerleaders and gymnasts and, you know, dancers and yoga teachers and of course, mental health professionals and the like. But this is a practice for all. This is an inside the home practice. A lot of what happens that does trigger us has happened within our family dynamics. You know, if in your family being sarcastic or telling, you know, your little brother that they were adopted and those types of things can then lend themselves to other behaviors and and emotional inconsistencies and other situations later. So I want to discuss the importance, the total importance of understanding why certain words are just triggering no matter what context they're in. Now, we all know about certain racial slurs, <clears throat> excuse me, or slurs that maybe are attributed to religion or sexuality, sexual preferences, sexual identity, personal identity. Those are all really important and everybody needs to honor that, period, right? If you're not sure of an origin of a word that you use, figure it out. I am not going to use any words of such nature on today's um, session, but I can tell you that recently I was talking with a group and someone just matter-of-factly used a very racial slur. And it was a, it, it was a racial slash religion, religious slur that maybe isn't popular or common knowledge. But because this is my field of expertise, 
I, I heard it and I thought, oh my goodness, I, I need to talk to this person after session because I didn't get the vibe that this person maybe even understood what that word meant. It was a slang word for a more derogatory word. And it wasn't one that is in pop culture or that people really even maybe think about. And after I spoke with her about it, she was like, oh my gosh, my family just uses that word. I I didn't even know that's what it was from. And oh my goodness. And the culture of people that she would have been insulting directly isn't a large cultural population in the United States at this day and age. So it's important for us to understand what words mean. You know, if you're from a part of the world and, you know, you've just, everybody always says something this way and you just never really thought about what that means, take some time and think about some of the words that you use. Slang words, especially things that people think is funny, things that you might just use and think it's okay. It's really important to erase those from your vocabulary. Pick a new word. (laughs) Just pick a new word, you know, something more sophisticated and change the vibration of what is exiting your mouth. This is really important because if you do not understand what you're saying and why you're saying it, then most of what we're talking about isn't going to work if one of those words exits your mouth. If you live somewhere where people just say something, Be really mindful of that because if you say something like that or that particular thing, it can erase whatever rapport you are hoping to have with another, regardless of everything else you said. People are extremely sensitive to language, especially culturally inappropriate references, right? And they do not even have to apply to you to be disrespectful to, and what I mean is apply to the person you're speaking to to be considered disrespectful or boundary provoking. I worked with a woman who thought that it was okay to talk about a culture of people in a way that would have been wholeheartedly disrespectful if any of those people from that culture were listening. But it wasn't so blatantly, you know, racist or culturally, you know, unacceptable that most people listening to the way that she used that those words in her vernacular might have taken direct offense or even indirect offense too. However, I was very offended on behalf of my own ears and those who were not there to to protect their their rights, right? But it is my job to protect all human rights whenever the possibility arises in a situation that is safe, right? And eventually I did have to talk to her about it. Like, you know, when you talk like that around me, I I understand that you're not necessarily trying to provoke me or anyone else. I don't think that's your intention. Sort of like the other woman I was telling you about who was using that word, didn't realize it was just something her family had always said and she never even knew the origin or the meaning. But I'm offended by 
the way that you're speaking. And I would appreciate that you, A, don't speak like that in my presence, or B, change the way that you communicate, right? And to have that type of gravitas is challenging for many, but it's so important for you to live and breathe sacred space, right? Because again, just like the parent that seeks permission to hug their child who has the opportunity to say yes or no or, or maybe later or not right now or no thank you for whatever reason, right? As long as it's respectful, the exchange in itself is respectful between each side. So does all of our responsibility with facilitating sacred space. If you live your life facilitating sacred space, not only are you going to do it for yourself, but you're going to make other people feel comfortable and you will change the paradigm of people who maybe didn't think about themselves consciously, intentionally, and mindfully in this way prior to. So it's a learning opportunity. Now, do all things with respect and compassion and intention and read the situation for your own safety. But if given the opportunity to do so after making that assessment and evaluation, I highly suggest that you kindly teach, kindly lead, kindly facilitate. So communication. Communication is nonverbal. It's how we use our eyes our mouths, if we're smiling, if we are using our hands, if we're applying touch, if we're asking permission, if we are trying to relate, if we're actively listening, if we're actively responding, if we are sharing someone else's story, which could also be a boundary crosser, right? Someone's telling you something very intimate and you want to relate to them, so you tell them something very intimate about someone else that actually might not be taken as a moment of connection, but rather a violation. I'm telling you something very, very personal right now. I want to make an assumption that you are like a vault, that what I'm telling you is going to be in safe keepings in a sacred space, but now you're telling me about a situation about someone else. And even if you're not using their names, I know now that you might express my story to someone else. And I don't want my story expressed to someone else. I want it expressed to to you, between you and I. Or even if that person's telling the story to a hundred people in one room at one time, I am a firm believer that it is not your opportunity to continue that narrative without permission, right? Always seek on the side of asking permission. Wow, that is a very interesting story you're telling me. You know, I work with other people with similar situations. Is it okay if I share your story? And even if you're talking about their pinky toe being broken at the age of five in ballet class, is it okay if I discuss this story tomorrow with my other class? Right? Another thing I want us to realize is that Words, as we've discussed, can be very triggering, but also just certain words in general context 
can change the dynamic of a conversation or situation or context of the environment. So saying things like kill, murder, stab, racist, gun, shooting, in a situation where those words do not need to be used, meaning if we're talking about a certain event or protecting ourselves or a strategy, then sure. But if it's just general conversation, really be mindful of what you are bringing up and what you are facilitating and what you are leading into or, or leaning into, I should say, or just the words that you're using. A good example is I was recently teaching a yoga class and one of my students was telling me about a situation that had taken place at her child's school. And I, at the end of the yoga class, wanted us to send her love and light. And I did not repeat the situation that she had mentioned and the words she had used because they would have left that class with those words in their mind, which were all very triggering of protection and safety and security. So instead, I just mentioned, let's send her love and light for a situation that she has recently experienced with her children, right? And if they choose to seek out more information, then that's fine. But I wanted her to feel safe and supported in community that these were her friends and the people who care for her and her situation but without us utilizing the words. Again, right? Now that takes me into the last and final point of today's conversation, which is boundaries. We talked and discussed actively listening and actively responding, which is wonderful. But what happens when you're in a situation, especially in a public population type scenario like a class or a classroom or a workspace or a team space and someone is pushing the boundaries. You know, someone's using triggering words or, you know, bringing up certain stories or wanting to talk to even you about something that is out of the scope or realm of what you wish to facilitate. How do you handle your own boundary which is really important and keep it a sacred space for all. Remember, a lot of this is also inclusivity. Even if you're working one-on-one with somebody, the idea is that they feel included, heard and understood, right? So you become that second person in that conversation if you let yourself or you just allow them to be the only person and you stay actively present. So rather you're with one-on-one or more, the boundaries that you set for yourself and keeping it a sacred space for others is crucial. So the best way to do that is to listen actively. Let the person say everything that they're trying to express if it's directly to you, right? So if you're having a sidebar conversation with one person, sort of like my student and I, or you're on a one-on-one session, you're doing a lot of active listening, let the person speak. Most people, again, most, all, majority, right? People in most cases will eventually quit talking when they are done speaking, right? 
And most conversations and most stories and situations, if you are actively listening, will conclude within a reasonable amount of time. And I think that's fair. Now, depending on what your responses are during and after such conversation or discussion or situation could determine where this conversation continues to go. Now, when I work with people one-on-one, some of the things that they are most concerned about is someone maybe being inappropriate with them. You know, they're saying something inappropriate. They're making innuendos. They're saying something that feels uncomfortable to the person they're talking to or to the people around. How do you handle those situations? Well, nonverbal communication is your best friend. So just like when you wanted the person to feel comfortable, you didn't give them too much eye contact, but you gave them eye contact. You were mindful of your expressions of your face, your arm movements, things of that nature, right? Some of that could be true on the opposite. You know, giving someone a certain look, depending on your relationship with them, might I know we all have a grandparent or a parent that knows how to give you that side eye (laughs) that tells them, hey, you know, you know better. A wink that says, I gotcha and we'll talk later or thank you. You know, a a nice friendly gesture and, and maybe even a stop to the conversation. Or completely releasing your eye gazes and changing those gazes to something else and possibly the subject to follow, right? Without, and here's the key word, without hopefully that other person feeling misunderstood or disrespected, right? Because in a leadership role of whatever type you're in, this is still going to be an important concept. You want to disengage appropriately, right? Not to also create a new trigger, If something is obviously outlandish, you know, especially if you're working with teams, you know, teenagers, things like that, things can get a little bit less (laughs) organized and controlled, then it's important just to be direct. Hey, we'll talk about this topic later. Or I think that this topic is inappropriate for the setting we're in. So let's, let's, let's change our focus. Now, one of the things that I learned when I was learning about trauma-informed practices is giving someone something else to do is always the way to go. Now, I probably learned this way before a trauma-informed practice by working with children. You never tell a child not to do something without giving them a new place to put their attention, right? That's just cruel and unusual punishment, (laughs) (laughs) Some could say that's true about training a puppy, right? You don't want them chewing your shoe. You divert their attention. You give them a chew toy that's made specifically for them. You take away whatever it is you don't want them to do, right? You don't just take it away because it makes them want it more. Same with humans. I almost said all. Believe it or not, the best thing to do is to replace the behavior or the situation as fast as you can. 
Oh my gosh, hey guys, I see that you guys are having a deep conversation. How about we start um, a new conversation? How was your weekend? You know? Um, wow, I see that all of you are wearing blue today. Did I not get the memo? You know, just making the situation light and diverting it, most people, <laughs> most, might not even notice, you know, especially if you're overhearing conversations, right? You're busy and you can hear sidebar conversations that are inappropriate or just not creating a sacred space for everyone else. They don't even have to be necessarily inappropriate per se. Um, and it goes back to that inclusivity. You know, if everyone is talking about something that is could be unattainable for the situation that you're in, you know, and I'm thinking of flexibility in a yoga class or, you know, something of that nature. And, and that's not the purpose of yoga philosophy, so to speak. But everybody in class is talking about, God, you know, my whole goal is to do handstand and touch my toes. Well, maybe that's not creating an inclusive environment and you're just overhearing these conversations. This would be a good time for you to pipe up and say, you know, flexibility and handstands are amazing results of a consistent yoga practice for some people. And other people just learn how to have prolonged meditation or deep breathing or just an hour on the mat to themselves, you know, and you create a lesson out of a situation that might have not been inclusive. The challenge is making sure you're not the person creating that dynamic, right? But you do have to control the situation. You are the leader. You are in the role of authority and position, even if it's for a moment in time. Another good example is not letting people, you know, bully or or say negative things about others in your presence. Children are the perfect little humans to practice this on because they just speak their mind without always caring about the feelings that may be hurt. If you have the opportunity to work with children in any setting, it pretty much doesn't matter what setting it is, <laughs> you will have the opportunity to utilize this skill to be able to stop them from creating a negative behavioral pattern. And it's so important, even if you're just a bystander, to be involved in the journey of children doing the right thing in their lives. You know, if you're just hanging out at a park and you hear children playing, I've had this happen and I've had to speak up. Hey, you know, I hear, I hear you guys are... Uh, saying some things that might not be very nice. Do you realize that that's not very nice? And then usually they look at you like, who are you, lady? Wow, well, I just want you guys to think about what you say. You know, and being mindful of how you approach those situations, right? Because there might be uh, bigger humans that may or may not be evolved. But as this becomes a part of who you are, you will notice, just like any other muscle, you will become a different communicator altogether. Your listening skills will be seen as compassion. People will say things like, wow, you're just so patient and compassionate. 
But really, you're just actively listening and creating a sacred space for all. Enhancing boundaries, honoring boundaries, and creating an environment, at least while in your presence, that is enjoyable and peaceful for everyone. So this conversation about communication, I think, is something that should just be the tip of the iceberg, get out your journals, notice when you say something, notice when your grandma, your grandpa, your aunts and uncles, whomever in your family say things, because that's really, you might not notice what you're saying, but notice what the people that you surround yourself with say, and then extend that to the people you work with, and then extend that to just eavesdropping like in a very (laughs) conscientious and mindful way of strangers and journal that you know what are words that are used that might not lend to sacred space inclusivity mindfulness compassion and a last note because someone just brought it up in the chat thank you thank you for that is swearing, curse words, cuss words, bad words, and and even outside of swearing, just negative words, which we touched on, right? Like murder, for instance. But swearing, you know, the F-bomb, the B-word, the S-word, you know, all the things that we tell little children not to say. I do believe that when people are in professional settings, religious settings, in the presence of elders, in some miraculous way, we tend to tidy up our language. <laughs> I think it's important to try to make a concerned, a disconcerned effort to do this in your regular day-to-day life. Not just when you're in front of your children or your pastor or your grandmother or your boss, or your clients, right? But I do believe that this is important because for some people, throwing in that F-bomb changes the sentence to an aggression, to a disciplinary action, to a threat. I know for many people that are in my culture and family, the B word is fighting words. But also for many people, Some words are just culturally progressive, right? But we're all aware of sacred space creation. And in order to do that, we don't know what is going to trigger someone else. We actually can say something that is very, you know, seems very benign to us. That could be very triggering to someone else. I mean, you can't control if if you say real men wear wear pink, if that's going to spark up something for someone, which... I say that because I've done that. That sparked up a conversation, debate, and a little bit of aggression and anger from a a small group of uh, acquaintances at one point in my life. And so I'm really like mindful now when I say it or hear it. It's sort of interesting. But we all know that there are certain words that the chances of them being more derogatorily I don't, is that a word derogatorily <laughs> that may lend to more of a negative response are higher, right? So using the B word, calling somebody the B word, 
those are going to probably create some sort of a reaction that might not be in the favor of creating sacred space, right? Um, I'm not telling you what to do, right? I, I have for sure not done well at some of this and recently even. And one of the things that I'm, I'm really wanting to work on is just actively listening, actively listening, actively responding, actively responding, choosing what response I would like to utilize, like making a conscious effort to choose what I wish to say as if I'm writing it and it's being published in a book. We do not have to just talk, 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 talk off the top of our mind. We can actually take some time and choose what we wish to say. And that time could be a split second or it could be longer. It can be asking for time to think and respond later. It could even be that intentional, which I do advise for anything that seriously needs some thought applied to it, such as what should I do about X, Y, and Z or you know, your mate asking you something really important. It's okay to take some time and, and ask for, you know, patience from the other party. But a lot of actively responding to something can happen in a split moment. You know, if you're doing um, an interview, you know, I love, I love using this as an example, an interview for a job or a placement on a team or to get into college, whatever your interview's for, Chances are pretty high that you have studied some responses, which should be closer to your truth than not, right? You're not going to talk about playing ice hockey if you never have, hopefully. You could talk about dreaming of doing it or wanting to do it, but actually talking about it as if you've done it when you haven't might not be the best solution. So we've rehearsed some of the answers to things that we don't think about anyone ever asking us, but they're all true answers, right? So you don't always think about someone asking you what your dreams are, your hobbies are, what you would do if you had a million dollars, or what would you do if you could save the world, you know, or if you could have any superpower. I mean, these are all answers that you're going to answer truthfully, but because no one really spends their time answering those type of questions on a regular basis in most cases, you would need longer than a few seconds to think about them. So you rehearse some of that, right? So that's fair. But what you also do is you actively listen and you actively respond. And you do it in a way that creates hopefully flow. And that is something that we all do and have done or will do. And we have no qualms about it. You know, don't even get me started on the dating interview type <laughs> persona. And so we know how to exercise that muscle is all I am saying. So let's exercise it more. You know, that will prevent us from disrespecting others. You don't want to accidentally you know, insinuate that someone's idea was stupid or that they don't feel the way they do or that what they're feeling isn't that serious or people have it worse off than them or 
whatever, fill in the blank. So when you think about people in your life that have made an impact on you, good and bad, I want you to really take some time and think about the why. Why did this person impact you in a good way? And why did this person impact you in a not so good way? And you will not be surprised by your answers because you're going to notice that everything we discussed in regards to communication is going to correlate back to those responses you will have. The people who were actively listening and have patience and compassion didn't make you feel small. Those are going to be some of those memorable experiences. And the not so good is going to be those demeaning, neglectful, aggressive, you know, so on and so forth, or just not involved. But take time and do these exercises for your own life and for your own self. You have the tools to deal with some of the emotions that might come up. You know where to get some assistance and guidance and help if, if you tap into something. But this will help you because with all that you know and all that you've studied and all that you have lended your time and energy toward, if you still find some of this to be challenging and you still understand the importance of how much work is left for you to do, then it's going to be even more important for you to become a student of this practice of communication. Most of us communicate to get what we want and to get our point across, right? That M word, most. So let's be in the minority of the people who actually communicate to understand and to create that compassionate sacred space for self and others. All right. That is our time. I think that this was a really good lesson. Thank you all for allowing me to be a part of this conversation with you because that's really what it is. And when we meet up again, we can talk about some of the journaling activities that you might have taken yourself on or just some of the experiences that came up during the week for you, things you noticed, things you paid attention to, people saying their language. Um, Let's talk about that next time we come together. And I look forward to that because that's really where the work starts because the awareness and the sharing of stories. In the meantime, please do email me and um, we can discuss anything you like if you want to have a deeper dive or you have a personal situation that you want to discuss a little bit closer and deeply. I am happy to talk more about all of those things. And um, I look forward to the next time we come together in this type of scenario, in this situation. Thank you all for being here, though. This was awesome, awesome, awesome. I'm so honored. And um, this is just the beginning. All right, everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yeah, I see. I see. Um, 
there's some questions starting to come up. I'm actually recording this Zoom session. So I'm going to stop recording and then, you know, I can actually open up the mic and we can have some conversations for anybody who wants to stay. All right, let's do it. It's me, Breezy Bree, and you just finished listening to a brand new episode of Yoga Podcast. Did you know I started recording back in 2018 with almost 500 episodes, hundreds of those free audio yoga classes? I am so honored to guide you on your personal practice on and off of the mat. Check out my website, lovebreezybreeyoga.com, a link In the show notes will be provided along with lots of amazing information for your practice. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste.